0: First John chapter Two, and we are continuing our study in the second chapter of First John. I've remarked several times, I think in the past few weeks that I must have been just a little bit looped to think that I could teach through Matthew and Revelation and First John all at the same time. Uh, the truth is, though, I thought that First John would be easier than the others, but what I've come to find out As usual, when you look into God's Word, if you're going to take the time uh, to study it, you'll find that there are veins of truth that run deeply under the surface. And so if you're going to dig those out, you're going to have to spend some time doing it. And I don't mind doing that. I I find Bible study to be exhilarating. And one thing I would never want to do, I'd never want to roll back the clock 40 years to when I first started teaching and have to listen to me and... um, what I used to teach people, or things that uh, I didn't know, I, I would—I guess I would be ashamed almost to listen to something like that. So I'm thankful for the Holy Spirit. Uses the word; He takes it at the time that it's given. He knows how to make it effectual in the hearts of the hearer. And I would not want to be the one. I, I would shudder the thought to—to to be the one who had the responsibility of opening people's eyes to the truth that's found in the Word of God. And so if I'm done preaching and you found out something that helps you and something that you didn't know before, then give the glory to God alone. It belongs to Him. A few days ago, I was talking with Jared, and he made a comment about uh, churches where the congregation has all settled into their seats, everything is calm, and, and then when everything is ready, out comes the pastor and the staff, and the church rises to their feet and applauds them, as they walk up on the platform. And I I would simply be embarrassed beyond belief if people did that to me. Uh, I wouldn't want that to happen. I couldn't imagine the Apostle Paul ever doing such a thing. And I've heard all the excuses for it. I've heard all the reasonings for it. Oh, we do it out of appreciation. We do it out of respect. But I can't find any way that you could ever reconcile that with Scripture. I can't imagine the apostles would do that. And the reason that they didn't, because they knew man's propensity for pride. And so they would never have such a a display. But that's not the subject of my message tonight. I just threw that in. That's sort of an icebreaker to kind of get us into what we're going to talk about. But I just wanted to say all that to let you know that I appreciate uh, the privilege of being able to preach God's Word. And if I can be useful in some way, if God can use a worm like me, then I, I'm just ever so thankful. But our subject once again this evening is verses 7 through 11 in First John chapter 2. And here John writes, Brethren, I write no new commandment unto you, but an old commandment which ye had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which ye have heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write unto you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is past and the true light now shineth. He that saith he is in the light and hateth his brother is in darkness even until now. He that loveth his brother abideth in the light and there is none occasion of stumbling in him. But he that hateth his brother is in darkness and walketh in darkness and knoweth not whither he goeth because that darkness hath blinded his eyes. These verses introduce us to the second test that a Christian can use to help determine if he really does, in fact, know Christ. Now, we've already studied the first test. That was a moral test. We called it a test of obedience. Now, the first way that you can know that you truly are a Christian is that you are obedient to Christ's commands. And I made a comment about that first test. I said that I think that that first one is the easiest of these three tests that John gives for us to actually do. I don't really think that they're easy on the flesh. That's not what I mean. But I simply mean the moral test is the one that sticks out first. The moral test is one which you can perform on yourself without any interaction with any other person. It's a test that you can do in your home. You can do it in your bedroom. You can do it in your quiet time. You can do it when you're alone because this is an evaluation of your own heart. What kind of things do you think about? What kind of things flow out of your heart. And you will interact with people at some time or another. At some point, you will have to. And the person that you are when you are alone will eventually be the person that you are when you're with other people. You might be able to hide some things for a while. You might be able to cover up some of your sins. But eventually, what is in your heart will begin to show to other people. And so, when you evaluate your heart, you'll find out, if you are a true Christian, that You'll think the right things. You will have the right kinds of thoughts. The right types of things will flow out of your heart. Just as Christ said, a, a good tree does not produce corrupt tree, corrupt fruit, and a corrupt tree does not bring forth good fruit. And so if you find those two things mixed up, then you'll also find out that you're not truly a Christian. But the second test that uh, we're talking about here, I think, is a harder test because this also tells what's in your heart but it definitely requires interaction with others. This is a social test, and it's expressed in the second part of the Ten Commandments. Jesus summarized it in John chapter 13 in this way. He said, A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another, as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. Now there we discussed First of all, love in the law. And interestingly, this is the same language that John used in our text. In verse number 7, he says, I don't write a new commandment, but an old commandment. And by that, he means a commandment that was given in the Old Testament, even though for many years it was obscured by false interpretations. And then he uses Jesus' language in verse number 8, saying it is a new commandment. And he calls it new because Christ expanded their understanding of this commandment by teaching it correctly. And the hard part of this is really the toll that it takes on our flesh. So we call this, secondly, uh, the message last week was about love in life. And John chapter 13 gives us an illustration of love in life. It's the chapter that begins with the foot washing episode. And there Jesus demonstrated in a selfless act of humility Uh, the most menial task that a person could do, a a task that a servant would do, and that is to bend down and to wash dirty feet. And that was the same night that he gave the Lord's Supper. The disciples had been arguing about which one of them was the greatest. They were trying to figure out or they were contending for bragging rights about who was going to be uh, had the highest position in the kingdom of God. And I suppose what they expected was that when they walked into that room for that... For that supper that they should have been applauded. They should have been able to hold up their heads high and they could drink in the cheers of people that were around them. But in fact, Jesus taught them something that was very much different. He didn't teach them to be platform squatters. Instead, instead he taught them to bend down and to wash feet. They shouldn't desire the chief seats in the synagogue, deflect all that applause, save all of that for somebody who is worthy. So the foot washing was a demonstration of love in life. And it didn't mean that you have to carry around a bowl and a towel and get down and take people's shoes off and wash under their dirty dirty toenails. But it had the spiritual significance of showing what a true believer is like, that a true believer is characterized by acts of kindness. A true believer is one who takes care of the needs of others. Now, that's a very hard test. It's a self-debasing test. It goes against every fiber of our human nature. And that's because we're naturally selfish. Nobody loves me better than me. And so that contrast that we find of love is actually selfishness. I think sometimes we think that the opposite of love is hate, but the opposite of love is actually selfishness because there's nothing that gets in the way of love like self. A husband cheats on his wife, not because he hates her. He cheats on her because He's selfish. Cain didn't kill Abel because he hated his brother. He killed him because he was selfish. It was because uh, the Lord had respected Abel's offering and not to Cain's. So, love is something that actually kills selfishness. And according to the scriptures, it keeps us from stealing and from killing, from committing adultery and from covetousness. Love cures a lot of evil. And all of those sins we find in the second division of the law. And when Jesus taught that principle in John chapter 13, he showed us that love takes care of that second half of the law. It will cause us to love our neighbors as ourselves and so not to harm them. So love is found in the law. It's Christ's command that we are to love one another. And when you first got saved, you should have received that understanding. And that's one of the reasons why John says that this is not a new commandment. I mean, this is something that you received at the moment that you got saved. And if you didn't get this, then you really didn't get saved. Because love is the way of a Christian life. That perfect example that we have of it is Christ. And the Bible teaches that we are to be transformed into the image of Christ. And this is the reason why that you've been chosen, why you've been called out, why you've been predestined. The Word of God says it is to be conformed to the image of Christ. And all Christians are made to be that way, not just some, but all of us. We're all saved for that purpose, and we're all to be conformed to Christ. And if we're not, then we don't have salvation. Well, we need to take this one step further as we try to understand what John has to say in this passage of Scripture. And so thirdly tonight, we're going to talk about the last aspect of it, which is love in the light. In verse number 9, he says, He that saith he is in the light and hateth his brother is in darkness even until now. He that loveth his brother abideth in the light, and there is none occasion of stumbling in him. But he that hateth his brother is in darkness and walketh in darkness and knoweth not whither he goeth, because that darkness had blinded his eyes. Now, once again here, we see that light and darkness contrast that John brought out in chapter 1. Light represents Christ and his kingdom, and the darkness represents Satan and his kingdom. Light represents a regenerated heart, whereas darkness represents an unregenerate heart. And the characteristics of the people that live in those two kingdoms is very different. At least it should be. Those who live in the kingdom of light are to be characterized by love. Now let's try to understand uh, these verses just a little bit better. And we're going to look at two aspects of love in the light. What does John mean or what happens to a person when he is in the light of Christ? Well, when you love in the light, first of all, it gives no offense to others. Now here, once again, we see where the three strands that are talked about here, three different strands of these tests become overlapping. John says, he that loveth his brother abideth in the light, and there is none occasion of stumbling in him. The moral test, which is obedience, produces a righteous life that will not give offense to others. Now, the best way that I think that I could put that is that in a Christian's life, there should be no just cause why your life should be offensive. In other words, there may be people who will, in fact, be offended by what you believe, And they'll be offended by the person that you believe in. That's Christ. But no personal offense should be in the life of a Christian. Now Jesus said as much in Matthew 5 verse 11. He said blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you. And shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. And we notice there that Jesus says that the offense is because of him and not because of you. What some people have tried to do is to take the teeth out of the gospel because they don't want to be offensive. And so they won't preach about hellfire and damnation. And they won't preach about uh, sin. They stop preaching about the bloody sacrifice of Christ because all of those things are offensive to the natural mind. But the true gospel of Christ is always offensive. You can't make it palatable to the natural mind. You can't preach it in truth and cause people to love it. When Paul or rather Stephen, I should say, preached to the Sanhedrin, they were incensed at truth. And the Scripture says, When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed on him with their teeth. And what did Stephen do other than to preach the gospel from an Old Testament text? When Paul preached at the temple, the Jews completely lost it. You know, I'm amused sometimes as I think about uh, the demonstration that they gave, the temper tantrum that they threw when when Paul was, was preaching. He mentioned Stephen, and then he said because of the Jews' rejection of the gospel that he had been commanded to preach to the Gentiles. And in Acts chapter 22, it says, And they gave him audience under this word. That means until he mentioned Gentiles. And when that happened, everything broke loose. And then they lifted up their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for it is not fit that he should live. And as they cried out and cast off their clothes and threw dust into the air. So all that Paul was doing was preaching the truth of the gospel of Christ. And in both cases, the truth cut them to the heart and it offended them greatly. The gospel is never a friend to those who reject it in unbelief. And so we should never apologize if we're offensive with the gospel. As I said a moment ago, we haven't taught it correctly if we're not offensive with it. But notice that Jesus says here that they say all manner of evil against you falsely. And that's where you have to really watch out because you don't want anyone to say evil against you truly. Now, when that happens, it means that you have become personally offensive. The scribes and the Pharisees were hypocritical, and so Jesus accused them, and he accused them truly because they were. They were steeped in personal wickedness. But God's people, true Christian people, are not to be hypocritical. We are Christians. And anybody who bears that name, it ought to carry with it that everybody knows that the person who calls himself a Christian is one who is obedient to all of God's commands, that he says the right things, he does the right things, and he never offends anybody because he's somebody who is hypocritical that says but doesn't do. Now, I wanted to digress here for just a minute because uh, the gospel is offensive. And, and that part of it doesn't bother us. We expect that. We expect some stirring. We expect some uneasiness. And we haven't preached it correctly if, if there's not that kind of response. But we are not to be personally offensive with the gospel. And it is possible for you to give the gospel in such an unloving and spiteful manner that you actually cause harm To the cause. In other words, you turn people away from Christ. You will lose your audience if you don't present the gospel correctly. Now, I have heard, at times, the gospel preached in a very mocking manner. Uh, I've heard preachers that will belittle sinners, and they will talk to them with contempt. And there are some preachers that are absolutely proud that they have a hateful style when they present the gospel. And, And they think that that hatefulness makes them somehow or another uncompromising. And so they say, well, we're the rock-ribbed preachers of the gospel. We call an ace an ace and a spade a spade. And they're very, very personally offensive with the way they present the gospel. I was listening to a preacher the other day, and this is what I was referring to on Sunday morning in the Sunday morning forum class. And I was listening to this preacher preach about dress issues. And he was standing in the pulpit, and he was walking back and forth, and he was mocking women that were overweight. And he was complaining about them exposing too much skin. And he had some cute lines in his sermon, but he also had some very mean, questionable comments. And while he was talking about women in such a way and degrading them and, and making fun, I would hate to have been somebody in that congregation on that day, and this was in a very, very large Baptist church that most of you know, and I could name it. But... Um, There as he was making fun of these women sitting behind him on the platform were the platform squatters, the men who sit in these chairs. And while he's making fun of the women, those fellows back there couldn't see their shoes because they were so overweight. Now, I have to be careful when I talk about this because I can become mean as they are. So, you know, I I repent of that because I love those guys. I love the guys with the short ties that don't go over the belly because the tie took a half-mile trip around their neck. So, anyway, that's, that's, that kind of bothers me when people do things like that. You can be very offensive with the way you present the gospel, and you need to be careful about that. But let's move on from that, because a person who is in the light will not give offense because he does keep the commandments. And so he stays away from all of these things will negatively impact others. You go down those lists of the last six commandments, and you'll see what I mean. Uh, I mentioned those just a moment ago. For instance, uh, the Scripture says, Thou shalt not kill. And obviously, again, if you love somebody, you're not going to kill them. But do you remember how Jesus expanded on that commandment and he gave it its real meaning? He said if you're angry with someone and you don't have a righteous cause for that, then you are guilty of breaking that commandment. And if you're a person who's in the light, you'll be aware of that. But I've heard Christians talk about anger like it was a virtue. Oh, I really gave them a piece of my mind. I told them off. You know me, I'm not going to take anything off anybody. And when you say things like that, you just prove that you're stumbling around in the dark. See, did you miss this scripture in Ephesians chapter 4? Paul says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Forbearing one another in love. You know what that means? That means overlooking the offenses that people commit against you. A quick temper is not a virtue. And usually you'll find this to be true, that when a person wants to give somebody a piece of their mind, it's the piece that they can least afford to give. So I think about things like that and about anger issues and, and the way that people want to show themselves. You know, you know the very worst place that you could ever get mad is or lose your temper, is right here in this building. The last place that you would ever want to get mad and stomp out of is the church building. Because if you can't keep it together in here, we know that you're a terror when you get out there. And then he says things like, the, the scripture says things like, thou shalt not bear false witness against their neighbor. And nobody likes a liar. I mean, it doesn't make any difference if you're saved or lost. Nobody likes a liar. So if I find out that you are often caught lying, then I'm going to have a hard time with you. And, well, I should have a hard time. But we also have to think about that church member who always has that juicy little nugget of gossip to tell. how many times do I have to tell you that the best way that you can stop a gossip is to shut it down right when the person opens their mouth? And that's because a gossip can't be a gossip if he has nobody to tell it to. The worst job that I think I have as a pastor is monitoring the rumor mill. You know, the stories go around, and eventually, sooner or later, those stories are going to reach my office. And many times they've been circulating for quite some time, and somebody will come and tell me about it. And the reason that they do is because, oh, they're trying to protect the church, which is a good thing, or they're trying to protect me, and I appreciate that. But I guess a fair question would be, why, why do you, li- well, you've asked me, why do you listen to such things as that? And that is a good question. Uh, sometimes I listen to it because I have to stop some things before they become such a big problem that it's more than I can fix. It does more damage than I'm able to take care of. But make no mistake about this, those little stories that you get hold of and you try to pass around and you got a news scoop that you want to get out before somebody else beat you to it, those things don't always stay a little story. Gossip grows, it festers, it, it infects, it undermines, it eats away. It often destroys people. And a person that's in the light does not want to be offensive by either listening to gossip or telling gossip. Now, when the Bible talks about stumbling, as it does here in 1 John chapter 2, that stumbling is a metaphor for sin. A stumbling block is something that's in your life That trips others. And you don't want your life to be a hurdle that other people have to climb over. But here in verse number 10, when John mentions stumbling, uh, there's another way that it can be interpreted. And that is that a person who is in the dark is always stumbling himself. He may cause others to stumble, and that happens a lot, but he also has a hard time finding his way around himself. So when you're, in the, when you're in the light and when you love in the light, you also have this, this other characteristic of it that helps you is that loving in the light gives direction to your life. Being in the light shows you which way to go. John says in verse 11, But he that hateth his brother is in darkness and walketh in darkness and knoweth not whither he goeth because that darkness hath blinded his eyes. Now, we need to remember that the Scripture really gives us no middle ground. You're either in the light or you're in the dark. You either have a loving spirit or you don't. And the Bible describes a person who has a dark spirit as one who hates. And you might not agree with that assessment, but Paul describes it this way. He he speaks about the darkness of life without Christ, and he talks about it this way in Titus chapter 3. For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, Deceived, serving divers lust and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another, and that's another way of saying that our interests before we came to Christ were only selfish. We only serve self. And you can dispute that assessment if you like. But if you do an honest examination, evaluation of your of your of your your own thinking and the way that you were before you're saved you'll come up with the same conclusion and that's why that when you become a christian acting unselfishly is a very difficult thing for us to do and that's because that selfishness is bred into us it's a it's a constant struggle that we have in our lives because the old nature is still with us and so we fight that old nature we try to keep that down to keep it from rising back up again in our lives and taking over but the good news is that the light of the gospel has shined into our hearts, and so that light is there to guide us. The person who's in the dark is doubly dark. Two ways. He has his eyes blinded, but he's also living in a kingdom of darkness. And there's no possible way that you can find yourself or find your way around in that kind of a, of a situation. I mean, even if you could see. If, if you took off the blinders from your eyes, what is there to see? Everything in the kingdom of the devil is dark, and so you're always going to be stumbling. And you can tell who these people are. You see them stumbling. Uh, A person who's like this, who doesn't love in the light, causes people to fall over him, and he's always falling over every obstacle himself. So in the church, you can recognize who these people are. One commentator said it this way. He said, The man who is in darkness and who is walking in the darkness and whose mind is dark is an occasion of stumbling to himself and everybody else. Because he has an unloving spirit within himself, everything he comes into contact with is going to cause him to stumble. And because he is an unloving person, he causes other people to stumble also. And isn't that true? I mean, a person with an unloving nature will always run into problems. They always have problems. Troubles follow them around like a lost puppy dog. They're, they always see an insult and in everything it's said to them. Uh, insults are everywhere where they shouldn't even exist. Somebody's always upsetting them. They're always being put out about something. They're constantly stumbling because of that unloving spirit. But John also says here, they cause other people to stumble as well. Now, a person in this condition, you really don't know what to do with them. They're people that are touchy and sensitive if trouble follows them everywhere they go, then when you run into them, you're going to run into trouble because that's their constant companion. And mo- and most churches have people like this. They're uh, sometimes what we call kid-glove Christians. You have to do your best around them. You have to be very careful about how you turn a phrase because they're always trying to turn your phrases. They're always trying to make it something that it's not. And so they're easily offended by the most little or the littlest innocuous things It's unbelievable the kind of chips that people carry around with them. And their burden in life is that chip. It's that one they carry around just waiting on somebody uh, to knock it off. And the truth of the matter is that pastors spend far too much time dealing with those kinds of people. And what happens is when you get over one issue and you think you've got that solved, you just wait because there's another one right behind it, and you're constantly dealing with those kinds of people. Now, I know that I can be wrong about things. It rarely happens. But I can be wrong about some things. And sometimes people will come to me and they'll call a certain thing to my attention. And they tell me, well, you could do this in a better way. And if it's valid, I listen to that. And if there are changes that need to be made, then I make them. But there's a lot of stuff that is so trivial that people bring to me. And people are so easily offended by things that I, that I learned on day number one as pastor of the church, that you cannot accommodate those types. And if you try it, you're forever going to be dealing with their complaints. And so having been in the church for some time, I was able to spot some of the problem areas, and so I decided that I was not going to add to an already difficult job. And so there are people that come to me with their little petty issues, and and so I just look at them and I say, I'm sorry, but this is the way it's going to be. And you'll have to like that or not like it. And if this is best for everybody, believe me, it's best for you. You see, when you're teaching God's Word faithfully and consistently, you're in the process of conforming people to the image of Christ. And one of the things that you'll learn when you listen is that unity in the church can never be had by yielding to 200 different opinions. There has to be something said from the pulpit that is the fact That's the thing that's going to stick, the thing we're going to stay by, the thing we're going to agree to. Because when we have everybody else's opinions floating around, there will never be unity in the church. And a church can't stand that. A church that's divided will fall. And divisiveness in the church is healed when people do what Paul said in that verse I read earlier. With all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, my interpretation of that would be that sometimes, most of the time, if not almost all of the time, you have to cry, Uncle. You have to give up your positions. And, And unless the pulpit wanders way off into some kind of doctrinal error, then you need to be ready to cry, Uncle. Give up those opinions. That's the spirit of the law. That's the spirit of love. That's the spirit of light as you walk in Christ. And the plain, simple truth of the matter is that you cannot walk with Christ unless you're also walking with each other. Those things go together. And so when you find contention, when you find division, when you find arguments in the church, when there are spats going on all the time between people, these are not people that are walking with Christ. And so I think this is what John's trying to get across to us here. There's light and there's darkness, and people that walk in the light are unified with one another in the truth of Christ, and they keep a unified body in the church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to look at your word tonight. And Lord, we do pray that you'd help us to be a people that we are unified, that we love one another, that we can overlook each other's faults. We all have faults. We all have better ways that we could do things, better attitudes that we could have, and, and maybe things don't always go our way. But what we need to do is to learn to give in for the good of all. When there is no doctrinal error present, then we are to follow. We are to listen to leadership. We are to be right there when the call has gone out and come together as a unified body in Christ. Help our people to be that way. Again, help us to love one another as we should. Bless us as we sing tonight. We thank you for each one who's come out to hear your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's